Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. You're listening to the first episode in our brand new series, the Foreign Policy Toolbox. In the FP Toolbox, POFA will be unraveling the mysteries of the most important institutions, concepts, and policies that decision makers actually use to implement foreign policy. What is the National Security Council? How do sanctions work? What's the process for crafting international treaties? Sounds boring? Well, don't worry. POFA will be keeping it casual and informative to make sure you stay along for the ride. To help us investigate how foreign policy truly gets made, POFA will be inviting some of the world's foremost experts on a variety of topics. So put your safety glasses on. We're opening up the Foreign Policy Toolbox. In our first episode of the FP Toolbox, we are dissecting one of the world's most important, but often misunderstood, foreign policy institutions, the National Security Council. Created by President Truman in 1947, the NSC plays an instrumental role in crafting U.S. foreign policy. The institution's autonomy, however, has sparked heated criticisms, and in the case of the Iran-Contra affair, national scandal. So how does this institution really work? Are these criticisms legitimate? And what is it really like to work at the NSC? To help us answer some of these questions, today we are joined by Dr. William Inboden. William Inboden is Executive Director and William Powers Jr. Chair at the William P. Clements Jr. Center for National Security at the University of Texas, Austin. Previously, he served as Senior Director for Strategic Planning on the National Security Council at the White House, where he worked on a range of foreign policy issues, including the National Security Strategy, Strategic Forecasting, Democracy and Governance, and more. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Dr. Inboden, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Pleasure to be with you. All right. So to get us started, Dr. Inboden, uh, I want to ask you, what is the overarching purpose of the National Security Council? It's a great question, Zach. And I should first clarify that the National Security Council refers to two separate but related entities. So let me explain that real quick, and then that'll help us understand the purpose. So when you hear the National Security Council, it can refer either to the occasional gathering of the president and his, or maybe eventually her, uh, top national security officials. So the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Director of National Intelligence, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, when the president convenes an NSC meeting and those people are sitting around the table, that is that is the National Security Council. But the term National Security Council also refers to the permanent staff um, at the White House, the NSC staff. And people often refer to the staff as the National Security Council for, for, for shorthand. Um, <clears throat> both of those entities have uh, three uh, over, overlapping purposes, three overlapping roles. Uh, the first is to support the president uh, on his foreign policy, foreign and defense policy decision making. So, you know, write the memos, provide the policy options, um, provide the advice and guidance that a president needs in his commander in chief role or, or diplomat in chief role. The second is, uh, the second role is to what's called coordinate the interagency. And that's kind of bureaucratic speak for essentially making sure that the um, the various departments and agencies of the U.S. government who work on foreign and defense policy, the Pentagon, the State Department, the Treasury Department, the CIA, the uh, uniform military, um, that they are all 
aligned and, and working together, uh, trying to carry out and implement the same policies and uh, so that the U.S. government can speak with one voice. We can talk a little bit more about the complications in that. And then the third role of the NSC is to help drive or promote the president's policies uh, across the U.S. government. Um, as you know, presidents are elected every four years, but um, so much of the U.S. government is a more, more permanent bureaucracy. And so uh, the NSC was in some ways created to help a president get control of his his government and make sure that it's carrying out his policies. And so the NSC staff and then the, the, the council, when it actually meets, are there to uh, make sure they understand what the president's priorities are and to uh, make sure that the rest of the government is carrying and implementing those 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 policies. I'm wondering if you could talk a little more about how the National Security Council is organized. Um, you talked about the permanent staff members and also, uh, you know, the president meeting with his top um, national security officials. Um, could you go deeper into depth about how those both parts are organized? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the first meeting of the National Security Council, you know, when it's that meeting of the president and um, <clears throat> and his top cabinet officials uh, around the table, uh, the, uh, several of um, several of our top cabinet officials are members of the National Security Council by virtue of their position. So if you are the Secretary of Defense, you automatically are a, a member member of that council. Um, and so that organization just takes place whenever the president wants to call the meeting. He said, I want to get my, my NSC together. So sometimes you'll read in the newspapers or, or see on the news, um, you know, a crisis erupted in Europe. The president convened a meeting of the National Security Council. The um, Oh, and one member of that National Security Council, and this helps connect it to the, the National Security Council staff, is the National Security Advisor. Um, and he or she is a senior member of the White House staff. So the National Security Advisor's office is there in the West Wing, just down the hall from the from the Oval Office. It's called the Suite. Um, and is uh, there to both uh, staff and serve the president on all national security issues, but also to run and oversee and manage the National Security Council staff. And most of the rest of the National Security Council staff are um, housed in the Eisenhower Executive Office building adjacent to the, to the West Wing. And their numbers vary. It can be anywhere from 50 on up to three or 400 people, depending on the particular president. Uh, and they are organized into um, uh, different directorates handling a particular region or a particular function. So you'll have the Asia Directorate, you may have the Non-Proliferation Directorate, the Counterterrorism Directorate, and then the staff in each of those directorates, and usually it's just a handful of people, um, is usually either a director or a senior director. Most of them are career employees of another department or agency and are detailed over to the NSC. So most of the NSC staff will be, uh, say, a full-time Foreign Service Officer at the State Department, or perhaps a, um, a, a active duty military officer, usually a captain or a major or a lieutenant colonel, uh, or perhaps an analyst with CIA um, or a policy official with the Treasury Department. And while still on the payroll of their home department, they will go over to the NSC staff for one or two or three years and be detailed over there uh, to work under the National Security Advisor and the president on those on those particular issues. So it's a very it's a complicated structure, as you can hear, but it's an interesting hybrid where they can draw on the expertise um, those different staff have not only of the issues they work on, but also how their home department or agency works, and then can bring all that together there at the White House um, and uh, to, to hopefully develop uh, more uniform and coherent policies. 
So Dr. Inboden, I'm interested in the process that you briefly mentioned about the kind of interagency loaning of, of workers to the NSC. Um, do you have to come for a different agency or can you be pulled from the outside? You know, for example, if, if Robert O'Brien wanted to hire me right now to put on the NSC, am I qualified and can I get a job? No, it's a great question, Zach. Um, short answer is it'd be pretty unusual. Um, <clears throat> there are uh, maybe about 10% of the NSC staff will be what's called direct hires or uh, hired directly onto the White House staff from, from outside. So um, it's no, it, it occasionally will happen, but about 90% of them are these you know, career employees of other departments or, uh, or, or agencies. And um, it's partly a function of the White House actually has a really, really tiny budget for staff. Uh, and so it's partly just a, an economics issue that it's a lot cheaper to bring in um, people who are being paid by other departments and agencies. But it also reflects this, um, the NSC's role of trying to uh, coordinate the different departments and agencies. And I think there's a, a sense that you could do that best if you have people from those departments, agencies who know how they know how they work, rather than people who've only been hired in um, from from outside who didn't have any previous government service. And I want to know what is the holdover rate of NSC staffers between administrations? How long do they stay after a new administration comes in? And also, um, another question is who kind of is the boss of these staffers? Is it the National Security Advisor or is it the president? Oh, uh, very good questions, Julia. And, and um, to take your last one first, the immediate boss for the staff is the National Security Advisor. So he's the one that they will report to day to day. But of course, he works for the president. And so in that sense, the ultimate boss for all the staff is, is the president. Um, and the question of staff holdovers, again, referring to when... Um, uh, you know, a there's a presidential election and a new president is coming in. Uh, of course, you know, inauguration day is always January 20th of whatever particular year it is. Um, the vast majority of White House staff, uh, non-NSC, will leave since the vast majority of White House staff were only there working for whoever the previous president was. And so there's that really interesting transition window of that last morning of January 20th, the old staff are you know, packing up and moving their boxes out, and the new staff are preparing to come on over and, and, and come and come in. Um, the NSC staff are, by and large, an exception to that uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, most of them are career government employees. Um, uh, it varies with each administration. There's not a standard formula, but usually a a good number, a critical mass of the NSC staff will stay on um, from one president to the next one even if just for a few months. Sometimes they'll do it for a few years, um, but sometimes they'll just do it for a few months to help with that transition because oftentimes they're going to have um, very particular expertise on whatever um, issue they may have been handling, whether it's you know the Iranian nuclear account or uh, economic negotiations with China um, or dealing with Russian information operations or uh, NATO reform, any, any of those things. So they're going to have that expertise, which the new president will, will need. And then also they may have knowledge of very particular um, covert action programs that we are running or uh, sensitive military deployments. And someone still needs to be keeping an eye on those and, and having oversight on those programs and operations because those continue from president to president often. Uh, you, you can't turn, you know, you don't want to turn all of those off just because a new president is coming in. Um, that said, um, most presidents, most national security advisors uh, soon enough want to feel like they've got their, quote, own team there. 
And so it's pretty standard for um, uh, a good number of NSC staff to eventually, after that handover, after that transition period, rotate back to their home department and agency. And then maybe, uh, you know, the, the new president, new national security advisor will bring in a, a few, few new people to, to start fresh. Well, Dr. Inboden, I think that we have a good idea of the general organization and the purpose of the NSC. I'd kind of like to move towards what the actual policymaking process is like. So could you kind of walk us through that? Let's say, or I don't know, could you just give us an example? Like what, what is the policymaking process for the NSC or does it differ based on what they're actually making a policy on? Yeah, there's a few different ways that the process can work. Um, it will vary depending on the particular issue or the particular president or national security advisor. But let me give you a couple of examples um, one would be a, a top-down one where the president uh, initiated a, a policy process. Uh, the other would be a more a more bottom-up. Um, so first, the top-down one, that which I um, uh, had a chance to observe when I was on the NSC staff in the George W. Bush administration, is uh, throughout the uh, spring and summer of 2006, President Bush uh, was realizing that his Iraq policy was failing. You know, the we were three years into the Iraq War. It was a um, it turned into a, a, a very, uh, very bloody civil war, um, and he realized the current policy was was failing. There were a couple of NSC staff, who, uh, especially Megan O'Sullivan and Brett McGurk, who had certainly been seeing that it was failing and had been sending notes up to the president saying, Mr. President, we think we need a new policy here. Um, but it, it came from the president. He said, all right, I can see this isn't working. Uh, I want to commission a policy review and I want to see some new policy options. And so the president, um, through Steve Hadley, the national security advisor, uh, it was a top-down process. He said, I want to see a policy review. I want to see some new some new options. And the national security advisor then gathered um, first a few uh, NSC staff to develop some options for him, uh, and then expanded the group to, to bring in representatives from the State Department, the intelligence community, uh, the the civilian policy makers at the Pentagon, uniform military, so on. Um, and out of that eventually came the the Iraq surge policy, which was implemented in January of 2007. Um, another example, uh, this is a little bit more of a hypothetical one, but this is, you know, certainly relates to more, more recent and ongoing events. Uh, let's say would be a um, question of uh, sanctions on the People's Republic of China for uh, some of the economic espionage um, and intellectual property theft and uh, uh, other un unsavory activities that some Chinese uh, government-owned companies have been have been uh, uh, engaged in, uh, an example of how coming up with a new policy on that could come from uh, the the bottom up would be. You'd have um, some analysts at the CIA and then maybe some diplomats at our embassy in Beijing or the State Department um, and some officials at the Treasury Department, uh, keep an eye on this, who all see, okay, we have a problem with these several um, Chinese companies that are really owned by the People's Liberation Army engaged in um, uh, economic and industrial espionage. And we need to come up with some answers. Um, so they would uh, first um, uh, approach the the lower levels of the NSC staff, say the, the director for China on the NSC staff, and the China director would say, all right, I'm going to convene some meetings because even though the NSC doesn't have much of a budget and doesn't control many resources, it does have the power to convene. Um, and so he'd say, I'm going to convene some NSC meetings uh, here, here at the White House and I want representatives from all those departments and agencies. And let's come together and give us... Uh, 
give us your best analysis of the problem of Chinese economic espionage, and then some recommended policies. Um, and so they would uh, you know, draft up a paper saying, here's the scope of the problem, here's some recommended policies. They would then kick that up a level um, to the senior director for, the, uh, for China, uh, for Asia on the NSC, who would convene a higher level meeting of assistant secretaries um, uh, and, and uh, people at comparable levels to say, okay, here's some policy options we've identified. Um, let's, uh, let's pick the three or four that we think are, we think are best. After the other levels uh, of the NSC uh, staff had reviewed the policy, they would then bring it to the president who would chair a National Security Council meeting and say, all right, here's how uh, our team has analyzed the problem. And here's their recommended policies on what, say, sanctions we should impose uh, or other uh, or the diplomatic measures to address these um, economic espionage problems from problems from China, and then it would become official U.S. policy and would be uh, implemented accordingly. So, to my understanding, there's other departments that also kind of have can make or policies or suggest policies, like the State Department. And so, I'm wondering how NSC policy would interact with policy at the State Department. Which one would trump? Any element of the U.S. government that works on something related to foreign policy is free to propose a new policy. Um, but for it to become official policy, it needs to be approved and decided at the White House by, by the National Security Council. So uh, the State Department can certainly um, suggest it. What they would do is they would suggest it to the NSC staff. The NSC staff would then convene meetings with other people. Uh, across the government to assess and review the policy um, and then put it through that formal policy process until it becomes official. Another key distinction, though, is the NSC staff is not supposed to be involved in implementing policy. Um, the NSC can convene and help develop policy, but the implementation of the policy, you know, actually making it happen, that's got to be done by the departments and agencies. So if it involves negotiations with another country, then you put the State Department in the lead. If it involves military action, of course, it's the, um, it's the, it's, it's the Pentagon. Uh, if it involves, you know, applying and implementing um, economic sanctions, it'll be some combination of the Treasury Department and the Commerce Department. Professor Inboden, I, I, you talked about this a little bit, but what exactly, like if you wouldn't mind, what does it actually mean to be the NSC Senior Director for Strategic Planning? I used to get that question a lot when I was in government too. So that's a good question. So um, that the uh, that was an office. The strategic planning office was a small um, cell created by Steve Hadley when he became President Bush's national security advisor. So um, it's an office that has not always existed. Some presidents have used it; other others haven't. Um, and it had it. Uh, it was a great place to work. It had a pretty broad mandate, which is to look over the horizon. Um, so much of the NSC staff work is, you know, dealing with immediate, you know, day-to-day -day crises or what's going to be happening tomorrow. And the strategic planning office's mandate was to say, you know, what's going to be happening six months from now, or even sometimes five or 10 years from now? Um, and what policies do we need to be taking accordingly uh, now that will help shape that, that future in, in a better way? Um, so, most other offices have what's called line responsibility. I mean, so the senior director for Asia is, you know, the lead person on all U.S. policy in Asia. Um, the strategic planning office, we didn't, quote, own a particular issue or region in that way. Uh, so we had a, you know, a much broader hunting license where we could get involved on 
any issue that seemed important, that seemed like it could use some extra attention, that seemed there might be um, some really critical uh, questions or opportunities coming up coming up in in in, in the future. Um, but uh, an office like that can also pretty quickly become irrelevant um, if you aren't actually working on real policy. Uh, and so the two keys for us, uh, Peter Fever and myself, who was my um, uh, colleague in the office, were one, we were able to keep a close relationship with the national security advisor himself. And so when you're connected to the top guy and he values your work, um, that uh, that in turn makes hopefully makes you relevant. And then second, we worked proactively to try to build friendly uh, relations with our other uh, colleagues on the NSC staff so that um, they would be hopefully happy rather than annoyed when we came calling and said we wanted to work with them on, on something. Because uh, otherwise you can pretty quickly make yourself a very un unpopular person there if you are intruding on what's seen as other offices' uh, policy issues. Professor, I'm also wondering what are the limits to NSC policy? Are there any limits on what policies they can enact? Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, um, the NSC has a very broad mandate to be involved or overseen just about anything related to national security policy. And that's very capacious, right? That, that could involve economic policy, economic development, um, uh, certainly defense policy, uh, diplomacy, economic policy. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty broad. And, um, and some, some people would say it's gotten, gotten too broad. On the other hand, um, I would I would uh, slightly modify when you said um, uh, any limits on policies the NSC can enact. Usually, for a policymaker, when you hear the word "enact," it it entails implementing, um, being the person who is actually making the policy happen. You know, doing the negotiations, running the covert the covert action, uh, pulling the trigger. And the NSC staff is not supposed to do that. Um, so the NSC role is more developing and coordinating policy and then maybe keeping an eye on how it's being implemented, but you've got to have the implementation be done by the, um, the, the folks in the departments and agencies. Uh, and that may sound like an abstract distinction, but has real life consequences. So um, about, um, excuse me, 35 years ago, one of the worst scandals in the NSC's history was the Iran-Contra scandal in the, um, in the Reagan administration. Very complicated scandal, but for our purposes here, a big part of the problem was you had uh, a few NSC staff, especially Colonel Oliver North, who had gotten very operational. Um, he was flying down to Central America on a regular basis to uh, you know, illegally channel uh, uh, money and arms to the Contras. Uh, he was flying to the Middle East doing some illicit negotiations with the Iranians. Um, any NSC professional Aside from the law break in there, we'll tell you that's a problem. The NSC should not be doing that oper operational stuff. They should be sitting at their desks at the White House, um, helping to coordinate the policy and let the other professionals do the implementation. Well, Professor Inboden, I think that the difference that you just described between you know making the policy and operating and acting it is is a really important for for people to understand. And when we're talking about the National Security Council. Um, but given that, I want to kind of move towards the history of the National Security Council. Um, and a question I have for you, Dr. Inboden, is how has the role of the NSC changed over time in American foreign policy? It's a great question, Zach, and it's changed very substantially. It's a, it's a really interesting case study um, and how if a law is vaguely written uh, without a lot of detail, um, it can evolve in any number of directions. Uh, so the NSC was first created by the National Security Act of 1947, right after World War II, at the beginning of the Cold War. Um, I'll get, you know, 
it, it's a complicated history. I'll try to give the very brief summary. Um, uh, it was essentially coming out of World War II, um, President Truman and a lot of other national security professionals realized the President of the United States was um, did not have the tools or instruments he needed to make sure that his government was speaking with one voice, that military policy was aligned with diplomacy, was aligned with intelligence, was aligned with economic economic policy. Um, and uh, there's something I call the paradox of presidential powerlessness, which is this, even though we usually think of the American president as the most powerful man in the world, and in some ways certainly is, most presidents feel powerless to even get their government to do what they want because they're sitting on top of this vast bureaucracy that was there before them and will be there afterwards, and no single person can keep track of everything. So the NSC was created um, to be an instrument for a president to just help um, know what his own government is doing and bring everyone to the same table and make sure they can at least agree on a, on a, common, on a common policy. But when the law was, was passed, it didn't include the National Security Advisor. It didn't include a large permanent permanent staff. It just kind of said, this thing will exist and the president can shape it as he wants. Um, uh, so as the NSC evolved, there's a few key inflection points. The first big one is um, 1961 when President Kennedy uh, is sworn in. And he decides that instead of just the NSC being a few clerks to help manage paper flow, he wants the National Security Advisor to be co-equal with the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense, like really one of his top national security officials. And so McGeorge Bundy, who is Kennedy's national security advisor and later, later stayed on for President Johnson, is the first modern national security advisor. Um, also under Kennedy and then under Johnson, you start to get more senior NSC staff who are more involved in um, really developing and setting policy instead of just, uh, again, as under uh, as earlier, managing the paper flow and letting the State Department and the, and the Pentagon um, uh, develop, develop policy. The next inflection point is when Henry Kissinger becomes National Security Advisor under, under Nixon, and he takes the position even one higher. So if Kennedy and Mac George Bundy had made it kind of equal with Secretary of State and Defense, Kissinger uh, takes it to the next level where he makes the National Security Advisor the single most important national security official in U.S. government, more so than the Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense. And he did that, of course, with um, support from support from President, President Nixon. Um, and then finally, the, the next final inflection point I would point, I would uh, highlight is after that Iran-Contra scandal in the Reagan administration, um, uh, President Reagan appointed a commission to study what went wrong and to help um, restructure the NSC. And he had um, Brent Scowcroft uh, as one of the lead people on that, co that commission, the Tower Commission. Scowcroft had previously been a national security advisor under President Ford. And Scowcroft came up with a new design for the NSC to ensure that it doesn't get operational, um, but that it also uh, is more organized and, and better structured along the lines I described earlier. And then, of course, he, uh, Scowcroft, when Bush 41 is elected, becomes Bush 41's new national security advisor and then sets up the modern uh, structure of the NSC, which uh, with with some uh, gradations, every president of both parties has tried to model it on ever since. So based on what you said, it seems like the NSC and the National Security Advisor have had a lot of, um, I guess, power. And it seems to me also from my reading that the Ad National Security Advisor is not confirmed by the Senate. And so I guess my question is, is there a lack of oversight over the National Security Council? And is this an issue that the American public should be concerned about? 
It's a great question, Julia, and that, there's a big ongoing debate about just just that. Right, it has been for the last last few years. Um, so you're correct that the National Security Advisor is not confirmed by the Senate. Um, I would say that the National Security Advisor and the White House Chief of Staff are almost certainly the two most powerful officials in the U.S. government who are either not confirmed by the Senate or not elected by the American people. Everyone else, you know, cabinet secretaries, the president, the vice president are either elected or, or confirmed, confirmed by the Senate. Um, so there potentially is a big accountability issue there. That said, my own personal opinion is I still, I would not change the way it is. Uh, I, I understand some of the problems and concerns, but uh, I still think that it's better overall for the country if we have a fairly strong institution of the presidency, and that includes a president having some latitude to pick the um, the people that that he wants, uh, he or she wants for national security advisor, uh, without having to go through the Senate conference Senate confirmation process. I think there's enough other checks and balances on the presidency, uh, with all the other officials having to be Senate confirmed, with budget authorities and, and, and things like that. Um, I still want uh, presidents to have um, a decent amount of latitude and and power and capability to have their own people to have that confidential advice that they that they need shared shared only with them through um, uh, again the you know exec, executive privilege. Uh, I'm aware of plenty of downsides of this. I could, you know, on some days I might even argue against myself on this, but it's, it's a tough call. But that's that's where I that's where I come down. Well, Dr. Mboden, thank you so much for joining us on such an informative episode of the podcast today. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed our discussion, and um, hope your listeners find it fruitful as well. These are fascinating topics, and I, I know they're they're not simple, but I think really important uh, for all of us as Americans to be informed about. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.